Today's episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is sponsored by Onnit, and specifically, I want to tell you about their emulsified MCT oil. If you're an MCT oil fan like I am, I highly recommend this product. Remember, MCT is a particular type of beneficial fat that requires minimal action from the liver to convert directly into fuel in the form of ketones. Head to onnit.com, and under the nutrition, you'll see that emulsified MCT you drop some in your coffee, your smoothie, you're ready to roll. They've got great flavors like almond milk latte, coconut mocha, and creamy vanilla. And we're hooking you up with 10% off. So when it's in your cart, use the promo code PICK6, P-I-C-K-S-I-X, and you'll save 10%. Go to onnit.com, use it for any of their products. But today I'm recommending you go pick up some emulsified MCT oil, use the code PICK6, and save some cash. Let's get on it. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've seen it recited on the screen, like in Full Metal Jacket, or maybe you're a Marine and you've said it. Either way, those words were penned by a Marine general named William H. Rupertus. My guest today is his granddaughter, and she joins me with her co-author of a new book called Old Breed General. They don't make them like General Rupertus anymore, and we get to know him on this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Amy, Peacock, and Don Brown, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Man, I am thrilled. We were just uh, doing a little chronology before the show started, and I was telling Don we're 80-something episodes into this journey of Pick Up the Six. We started in February of 2021, February 22nd, so our, our birthday is rapidly approaching. And I said, Amy was, I think, episode five of the show, five or six, talking about FIA uh, and her fitness journey and a little bit about this general, uh, General Rupertus. And you were telling me about how you're going to write a book, how you're collecting all this information. I said, well, we got to come back uh, when the book's out. And here we are. The book is out. So first of all, congratulations, Amy. Great job. Woohoo! We're excited. <laughs> we're excited. We got the story down. Yeah. Uh, for history, for family, for the Marine Corps and um, all sorts of reasons. It's yeah. We could, we could feel it when we talked and it was really neat because we had a conversation, you know, 35 sort of minutes, standard kind of pick up the six form. And we only spent about three or four talking about this. And I had more people contact me afterwards, like, oh, we got to hear more about General Rupertus. Uh, and, and I know that you were wanting to get to know him more because you never got to know him based on when he died and when your parents are born and just all this, right. There's sort of a lot of unknowns. There was no relationship there and you wanted to kind of dig in. And, and that was the journey. So before we talk about how you and Don got together in writing the book, take, take us back to how the journey to right. Learn more about him, collect more information, you and your sisters remind us how that all kind of led towards, all right, let's put pen to paper and kind of bring this story to life. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll try to make this, this quick. Um, or just starting with our father, who was the general's son, and it's uh, Major General William H. Rupertus. And um, his son, his son, who was our father, um, Patrick Hill Rupertus, was a Marine and a um, graduated from Naval Academy in 1962, and then joined the Marine Corps, flew for the Marine Corps in Vietnam, did two tours, ended up dying in 1991 um, when I was pretty young. He had cancer, Agent Orange-related cancer. And then our mom got ALS, 
And then she ended up dying in 2004. And all of a sudden, my sisters and I are the adults in the room. Mm. And we've got trunks and trunks of information, a library full of photos, letters, telegrams. I mean, we've got, um, a, you know, a handwritten letter from uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, telegrams from MacArthur, um, you know, so, so much stuff that we had to do something with these, yeah. these albums and this data. Otherwise, we really thought that our kids would or their kids might just toss it someday. Mm. And we never get this absolutely fascinating story um, down for the record. Our, our grandfather has always been kind of a legend in our family because he died when our father was five and um, his wife, Sleepy, died when our father was 16. Mm. So we had these people that lived in, in lead in World War II Pacific in a pretty momental, momentous uh, uh situations uh, you know and our grandfather led the first marine marine division in the pacific and the story was never told and we didn't really understand what i what the island hopping campaign was what he actually did and what the marines and our military and our navy did in the pacific so we knew we needed to do something and we kept saying we need to do something and it was mm -hmm. finally a guy named don brown who i knew through charlotte politics and that sort of thing who was writing a book called The Last Fighter Pilot. And he reached out in early 2016 and he said, you know, I've been researching the story about Captain Jerry Yellen and The Last Fighter Pilot. And I, I came across your grandfather and you, you need to write a story about him. He, mm -hmm. he's, he's a hero. And that was kind of the push I needed to get myself sitting in the chair and or whatever getting this information together so it makes sense and doing the research and sitting my butt in the chair mm. and get the job done we're going to talk about right the specifics about his life what led him to the military i mean an incredibly decorated career guy all you have to do is simply run a google search of his name you see admiral nimitz pinning honors on his chest i mean it's pretty incredible company to have been kept don Without giving away too much about the detail of the man, what about his story made you say, I kind of, I got to get with Amy and this family and, and help try to bring this thing to life here? Well, you know, I mean, Amy's right. I was actually researching for Last Fighter Pilot, which is also World War II biographical work. And, uh, and, and Jerry, I was looking into the, the background of the war and, the, you know, our involvement in China prior to the war in Shanghai, particularly, because I was wanted to set the the context for Last Fighter Pilot and saw a photograph of, of General um, Rupertus in, uh, with his staff in Shanghai. And that led me to Amy. Well, to answer your question, of course, you know, I quickly learned that the general had written the, the, uh, the very famous, uh, you know, Rifleman's Creed that you cited earlier, but per, perhaps even that's extremely significant. But one of the things that jumped at me that realized, hey, we have, um, we have a, a giant story here and a historical giant and something that has been told is that first off, the general commanded the very first American ground victory on the war in the Pacific, which is kind of like learning about the Revolutionary War, but leaving out Lexington Concord or right. learn about the American Civil War and forgetting Fort Sumter or or anything, you know, or or even. And so this is our, he commanded the very first victory on the ground at a time really when um, our forces and especially our Marine Corps needed the victory on the ground we come out of of uh you know the disaster of pearl harbor the japanese were on a rampage over the pacific and then of course there was a tr tremendous surrender of seventy thousand 
you know, Americans and Filipinos in the Philippines, we were reeling on the ground. Uh, we had, the Navy had won a great victory in Midway by the grace of God and some luck from uh, the, the cloud cover and a number of other things, but we still needed a victory on the ground. And so that's what grabbed me first. I'm thinking how, first off, how's the first victory on the ground never really been significantly re- reported about in its own right. And one thing's led to another. And I realized by the time I started digging the research, we have a military giant, uh, certainly a giant among, amongst our World War II commanders who's never really gotten his fair due. And it's time to do that. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I took, took it on as an American who, who you know, who, who loves the military and who loves history and very happy for Amy. I took it on as a very honor and a special privilege to be able to join her in this journey. It's, Don- it's a real blessing. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. Don, a military man himself, JAG officer in the Navy, and and so get that that sense of duty. All right, we're gonna we're gonna dig into it. There's an incredibly just pivotal. I mean, it's a sad, tragic story that happens in his life, and, it, and it's ten years before World War II even comes around. It's late twenties, nineteen twenty nine, uh, sort of thirty one kind of time frame. He's in China, uh, and he loses his entire family. So, Amy, tell us a little bit, because I think it sets the stage, right, for the grit of this man, the tenacity that he must have, his ability to lead under tough times. Tell us a little bit about just those tragic events that happened to him uh, in those years that that cost him his entire family. Yeah. Well, to give you a sense of place, uh, the Marines were there. Back in the day, there was an international settlement in Peking, China, where Europeans would come. They had carved out areas where they could live and do business. And um, the, the American, let's take the American sector of this international settlement um, brought the Marines in and they were called the China Marines, the fourth Marines. And um, our grandfather was uh, executive director of the fourth Marines at the time. This is 1929. They've gotten their first Far East assignment. He it's accompanied so he could bring his wife who was 38, Marguerite, his son who was, 14, William Jr. and their sweet daughter, Ann Rodney, who's four. And um, they uh, went over uh, across, the, across the sea to Peking, China. And um, within months, uh, I mean, they were having a wonderful time. At the time, it was fairly peaceful in China. And um, unfortunately, a scarlet fever epidemic swept through China. And um, it swept right into the reporter's house. And it, um, you know, I had called them, you know, like a little kid's story where the monster comes in the house and just takes everyone. And um, his daughter died on December 23rd, 1929. And then his um, son and his wife came down with scarlet fever and they ended up um, dying within 24 hours of each other, two months later in February. And then our grandfather, um, was also quarantined. So much like now, they couldn't even see each other. They couldn't even say goodbye. And I just, it's so hard to imagine that, but people clearly have been dealing with that with COVID. Um, but our grandfather, they ba- they had to send the, the bodies back to the United States. And um, and Marine o- Marines also died of scarlet fever. And so they were sending these bodies back they arrived at Arlington Cemetery. And so we've got a little teeny grave beneath our grandfather's grave and my parents' grave of these little, of these children. And Mark, the, his wife's buried there too. But um, so he, he was, as I've heard and heard different oral histories of people that were there at the time, he was really, as you can imagine, devastated. 
And for anybody who's dealt with that kind of loss to actually walk out with your shoulders up and your head up, you know, saying, I'm going to survive this is something he had no choice but to do. Um, he, there was no officer to relieve him to come to the Far East and take his position. So he had to stay on and um, do his do his mm. duty. It's, um, boy, it's, I mean, it really is unimaginable, you know, uh, then again, um, you know, uh, hardships are brought before us and we never really know why. Don, how do you think that, I mean, do, do you think, how do you think that that framed maybe the rest of his life uh, carrying that weight with him? Well, first off, one of the hardest, hardest parts about this book, that there's so much about the general, you can't touch on everything. So we, we've covered that, but that deserves its own separate work when you look at the and what i mean by that uh, there should be a standalone book on the general's china challenges alone but to answer your question it's one of the most incredible stories i've ever heard in terms of the perseverance bouncing back from adversity you can't even imagine i mean i mean i've lost both my parents my grandparents but i could not imagine losing a child or two children and and then losing your wife and and then to think of how devastating that could be on the first go around in China, and and uh, but yet he bounced back and got back into the core, and then married the, um, Amy's grandmother, whose name is Sleepy, and she was twenty some years younger, and, and then they started another family, uh, resulting in uh, the birth of Amy's father, and went back to China. Now, can you just think about that? Yeah. Went back to China in nineteen thirty seven, you know, with a new young wife, and uh, and they all of a sudden. Uh, are find themselves in the middle now of the the forerunners of the of the Shanghai massacre, which in 1937. And here's the thing about it, Brian. I think it's so amazing about it. And this I first began to appreciate when I was writing Last Fighter Pie is that in Shanghai in 1937 over a four month period, you had the Japanese slaughtering about 200,000 Chinese. Now think about that. That is four years before Pearl Harbor. Number one. Well, most Americans had no clue, you know, uh, even now as to what was going on. 200,000 over four months is about half the number of men that we lost, the Americans lost in the entire four years of the war later on. That was just the start of the Japanese slaughter in China. And so here we have uh, at that time, Lieutenant Colonel, right? He was Lieutenant Colonel at this point, Amy, your grandfather is Lieutenant Colonel Reportus in, in command of this this unit in Shanghai with his new wife, and he's seeing these atrocities up front. They have to evacuate Sleepy. He stays. They can't do anything about it. But it it probably made him one of, if not the most uniquely qualified senior officer in the Marine Corps to then deal with the Japanese on the ground. He knew their tactics better than anybody. He'd seen them face-to-face, up close and personal. So the, the whole story of China does two things. One, it is an incredible a measurement of his character, his resilience, his ability to bounce back, you know, the incredible pain and suffering that he had, and then to come back and to see the Japanese with their war tactics, it certainly made him, I, I call him, you know, he should be on the Mount Rushmore of American military leaders, and this is part of what made him uniquely qualified to do the job that he did at the time that he did it, and that was to eventually lead the 1st Marine Division in World War II longer than any other general. Just an yeah. incredible story. It, it sure is. And it's also, um, 
a lot of context and a bit of a reminder that the at the time, right, that Japanese aggression didn't start on December the 7th, 1941, yeah. right? You know, their their right. ability to uh, to start, you know, being uh, just doing what they were doing for wartime tactics, right? I mean, right. That, that's clearly right. documented. I'm, I'm grateful that you're able to sort of dig into that a little bit because I think it helps set the stage yeah. for, for ultimately. And that brings up one of the, right. I'm sorry, I'm gonna, but that brings up Please. one of the, the great, Questions kicked around by historians is when did World War II start? I mean, most Americans, if you ask us, we say December 7th, 1941. You ask anybody in Europe, they'll say September 1st, 1939. You ask someone from China, and remember, 1937 is when the Shanghai massacre took place. The uh, invasion of Manchuria goes back to around 1931. Mm. And so there was a whole other, you know, war going on. The war fever was percolating in the Far East. You know, really, for 10 years before Pearl Harbor, if you want to go back to the invasion of Manchuria. So it's interesting, you know, as a kind of an amateur historian myself to kind of like kind of get in that debate. And uh, and Amy and I talked about this before, but when did the war actually start? But I think when we look at look at it through the eyes of the general, it helps us to appreciate mm-hmm. that there may, may be more than one answer to that question. Yeah. Amy, I got to think, uh, having met Don and gone through this process, what an incredible wealth of knowledge and understanding for just this deep history that are these moments. Yeah. I mean, it was, I really, I, you know, I went, I really hunkered down and just began writing and, you know, I read about writers that went out into all these groups and joined them. And I was so focused on just getting the story down while the kids Mm -hmm. were at school and I could hunger, you know, focus. And so I have the story. I have, you know, we have the data, we have the diaries, we have all that stuff and the telegrams and the photos. Don brings in as a, as a write, author of 14 books and just, you know, reviewing the specific book he just did, he brought in a great um, sense of knowledge, mm-hmm. but also um, ability to experience as a writer, a great writer. Um, to um, and bring, bring in more dialogue, and he certainly brought in more Navy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> as important. a Navy guy, I was focused on the Marines. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and right. so I think it's been a total win-win. Yeah, that's incredible. All right, let 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 let's use our time to focus in on what those major moments are, those major accomplishments during the Second World War, because I want to hear about where he was along that process, right? There's a reason why Don says, I believe this man should be on the Mount Rushmore of American generals. Like, whoa, man, there's a lot of uh, big deal generals who have done a lot of amazing things. I mean, that's no half-baked statement there. Uh, So we'll go to December 7th, 1941, and then sort of what progresses on in this incredible effort and ultimately culminates in the defeat of Japan, right? Moments like Iwo Jima, where my grandfather's sitting on the USS Terry in the Pacific, right? During those battles, watching from afar. So Don and Amy, let's walk through, right? Without giving away, because we want people to get the book and read the book, right? Walk us through what what are some of those major moments for him throughout the course of that uh, Pacific campaign? Don, why don't I, um, I'll build up to him writing, going to New River and writing the Rifle Creed, and then I'll let, you can take it there and I'll jump, you know, to Tulagi and all that. Um, Real quickly, so our grandfather's there. He brought Sleepy to Shanghai. They're guarding the 
uh, international, the American sector of the international settlement in Peking, which is about three miles wide, long and wide. And um, the Japanese came in and attacked Shanghai and then they went down and we've all heard or many people have heard about the rape of Nanking. Mm-hmm. And so there, you can look up video about this. It's very, very violent. And it's, it's the march to war. And um, so by December 7th, 1941, our grandfather is um, commanding officer. Well, he's the, jun- he's the assistant commanding officer of the Marine Corps Base San Diego. Um, his commanding officer was General Upshur. On December 8th, when the next day after we were attacked, our General Upshur got promoted. Our grandfather became the commanding officer of the Marine Corps Base San Diego. Um, thousands of young men came to join the Marine Corps and sign up and go fight the Japanese in the Pacific. And um, our grandfather knew that, I mean, he had to start corralling them and training them. And he really knew that he knew this enemy. He'd seen them up front, you know, killing people, bayoneting them, you know, Mm -hmm. everything you can imagine. He knew that they, they took no prisoners. And um, he knew that the Marines rifle was really going to be important in this uh, battle with the Japanese in the Pacific. So um, seeing these guys, the young guys in, he, he, he really wants you to engage their hearts and minds before they engage their, their rifle. And um, that led him to uh, author this Rifleman's Creed. As an expert, expert rifleman, he'd been on the rifle, Marine Corps Rifleman's team. Um, he'd been an instructor. And now he was looking at all these young guys ready to go fight the Japanese. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's get you understanding your rifle. And that's how the rifle creed, my rifle, the creed of the United States Marine was created. Mm. So fast forward by March, 1942, he leaves San Diego with my grandmother Sleepy and our dad, Pat. He drops them off in Washington, DC where she, they're from. And then he drives down a new river in North Carolina and joins General Vandergriff in the formation and training of the first Marine division in, in new river. Back then they called it Tent City, but and now it's Camp Lejeune. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, by you know May or June and July, they were in uh, New Zealand. Uh, the entire division had gone to New Zealand. Our grandfather, um, the division split in two because we were two world wars going on. So our grandfather, or General Vandergriff, took one echelon, and our grandfather took another. Um, and they all met up in uh, New Zealand. And supposedly they were going to have six months to train. Um, but when the Joint Chiefs found out that the Japanese were building an airport on Guadalcanal, um, everything got moved up. So instead of having six months to train, they got a whopping, you know, few weeks uh, before they were going to meet the enemy in the Pacific. So, Don, do you want to take it from there? Well, yeah, you know, well, um, it's, it's interesting because what, what, the whole Pacific campaign was built, of course, initially on this notion of island hopping. And so the idea is that the Navy and the Marine Corps working together would would start the offensive and push closer and closer and closer to Japan. So um, so Guadalcanal, Guadalcanal is in the, um, the Solomon Islands, and uh, which is the largest of the Solomon Islands and 700,000 miles north of the eastern part of Australia, depending on you know what your mark point is from Australia. So what happened was, um, if anybody's seen them, I don't know if you've seen uh, the Pacific or not, uh, Brian, you know, mm-hmm. but if you have, 
part of the invasion of Guadalcanal is is portrayed there. But Guadalcanal, if you look at it in the, on the from the sea, thank you, my secretary just brought me a cup of coffee because I'm about to fall asleep here. But if, <laughs> if you look at Guadalcanal from the air, it looks almost like the state of California. It's about okay. you know you know two thousand square mile, large, pretty large island. Uh, the Japanese, as Amy said, were building a large airfield there, and that airfield, had they been able to use it, would have been instrumental in prosecuting the eventual invasion of New Zealand and Australia. So it was of strategic importance to begin in the Solomons. But Guadalcanal itself, on the day of this invasion, August 7th of 1942, and to put it in perspective, this is about two months after the naval battle at Midway, um, Guadalcanal was not that lethal at the time because the airfield was not operational yet. There were Japanese on it, but just across this body of water called the Sea Lark Channel or the Iron Bottom Sound was a smaller island called Tulagi. Tulagi and its sister island, Gabatu. The Japanese were headquartered there. Tulagi had been the, uh, the, the, the capital of the British uh, Solomon Islands, you know, when, when they controlled it, the British had abandoned Tulagi and there were seaplane bases there and at, at, at Gavitu also, these very small islands about 20 miles across this body of water. We had to attack, to attack there to defeat the Japanese and to secure those airfields in order to, to, to provide protection for the invasion of Guadalcanal initially because had we not been able to do that, those seaplanes could be used not only to attack and sink our ships, but also to attack our forces moving on to Guadalcanal. So the general's objective was to do that. So he takes 2,000 submarines and they move in first on August the 7th. And, and after naval bombardment from three aircraft carriers, uh, move in to Tulagi Island, where the general pulls a very daring, and this is our first amphibious landing, by the way. We've heard about Normandy. There was a failed landing at, uh, in Dieppe in France in the North Atlantic prior to Dor Normandy on the English Channel. This is our first successful invasion or amphibious invasion. So the general moves into Tulagi Island, which is, looks almost like, if you, if you can imagine, Great Britain. It almost looks like Great Britain turned on the side. Down at the southeastern corner, the Japanese had control. But other than the southeastern portion of the island, everything was coral reef. And so the Japanese depended on that coral reef to protect them. The general pulled a very daring maneuver and sent his Marines in over the coral reef. They came in on the backside. They had to actually you know, jump out of the landing craft several hundred yards in the water, up to water, you know, to their necks sometimes, and either swim in or wade in across the coral reef and then come in to establish a beachhead unbeknownst to the Japanese. They came in from the backside and attacked them from the backside. So it was a very, very daring maneuver uh, that the general pulled off. Nobody knew if it would be successful, but it was. You know, we hear a lot about the great landing at Inchon later by General MacArthur when you hit the tides up and down. But this is sort of a sort of a pre-runner to Inchon because mm -hmm. we had no idea what to expect. And uh, fortunately, we were able to catch the Japanese on the backside by surprise. They knew we were attacking them by the air. They really weren't aware of that invasion force until it jumped them on the backside. And uh, three days later, actually two days later on the night, we had secured our first victory um, on the ground. Tulagi fell the next day on the 8th, and then Gavitu fell on the 9th. And once that happened, General Vandegrift's Marines could move on to Guadalcanal 
without having to worry about those uh, strike airstrikes from Tulagi. And so it was it was quite an, an invasion, amphibious operation, and it's an amazing story. Amy, as you're collecting this, right, uh, as you're sort of p- putting the pieces together, right? you talked about spending a lot of time gathering this, right? I can only imagine you basically making a, a, cr- a chronology of it, sort of, sort of piecing it all together before you even start writing the book. Do, do you feel like you're kind of watching a movie, as you're piecing, piecing these together. And then as the book writing process comes together, I got to feel like maybe sometimes, yeah. did you feel like you were in it? Oh, absolutely. She's going to play her grandmother's yeah. role. When I do the movie, she's going to take the sleepy role. Well, anyway, first thing I'm ahead. thinking is, yeah, like we yeah. got to see this on the screen. Yeah. Well, when I was, uh, so basically what we had, we had, we had what we had and we knew the Marine Corps had what they have. And then uh, the archives has what they had. And so we pulled it all together to try to make sense. And then when we fight, our, our grandfather kept a diary, I think is for as long as he could. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we were able to decipher his handwriting, cause he wrote so small, it, came, it all came alive. I mean, he taught, you know, it really, cause he was talking about, he was going, you know, what was happening on Tulagi or he was the, you know, it was code red, code green. It was constant, uh, constant adrenaline rush. There's a sub coming here. There's plant bombers over there. Cactus is taking a lot of heat, you know. So, or, you know, we've got to go to this uh, bur- burial, and so we knew what he was doing, and um, you could really, really sense it. And then you've got, you know, n- newspaper reporters who are, who are embedded, and then you've got the coast watchers. So, all these stories come together to really put you right in there. Um, and, um, and it, so, so that's, that's what we love about this is, yeah. you know, you can, you can almost, uh, you know, feel the sweat and the humidity and the stress and the yeah. rush and I don't yeah. want I, guys, I, I really don't want to, cause honestly, selfishly, I'd love for you to recount every single amazing moment of his life. But I also want people to go pick up old breed general, which is the name of the title of the book, Amy, before we finish, we'll get to it here in a minute. I want to talk about why that's the title, but Don share, share one more. Give, give me one more teaser, right? That'll get people yeah. want to dig into old breed general. Cause they can go pick yeah. it up on Amazon. Yeah. It's available. What else jumps out at you? Well, first off, I want to compliment Amy. She's done her country a service because she and her sisters, here. the repository of first information they have, the general's, diaries or something the nation hasn't seen. So it made my job easier because they've done so much work uh, in putting this together. I'll say this though, at Guadalcanal, you'll appreciate this because your grandfather was off uh, um, was off of Iwo Jima where the fourth, the fifth, fourth, fifth Marines at the beaches there in February. Um, General Rupertus uh, came to Guadalcanal shortly after securing Tulagi, working as General Vandegrift's, uh, you know, second in command, General Vandegrift then had to leave Tulagi uh, and General Pertus wound up commanding the the final battle on Tulagi. Excuse me, I I said Tulagi, I meant to say Guadalcanal. Mm -hmm. He commanded the final battle on Guadalcanal, the Battle of Henderson Field and uh, and, and where John Bassalone won the Medal of Honor. And and John Bassalone, that name, you may know that name, later lost his life at Iwo Jima after coming back Mm -hmm. uh, and he didn't want to stay here. He wanted to go back and get into the fight. But the General Rupertus commanded that battle. And uh, if you ever read uh, any of uh, Webb Griffin's work, the core series is outstanding. You'll know about Battle for Henderson Field. But the General was in command there. 
this has never before been revealed at all. And so the information that is coming in this book, if you're a history buff, is first-hand source information, yeah. handwritten letters, the general's details from his um, war diary that we've never seen before. That's and, what's uh, so incredible to me. Yeah. yeah. That's what's so incredible to me about this and why I'm I'm just so grateful we're able to have this conversation for you guys to hear it because I I mean, I've, you know, I'm no major historian of world war two, but, but I've heard about a lot of the major moments and there's just so, so many incredible stories in here that you guys are bringing to life that you're right. I think you said it exactly right, Don, our nation owes a debt of gratitude to Amy and her family for, for keeping those pieces, for collecting and for sharing this hero's story uh, because it's one more piece, right? It's one more piece in the in the constant reminder as, and in a time where our country feels like it's being ripped apart at the seams, we are still the America that did these things, that did what your grandfather did, that has American flags waving in France today because of liberation, right? We are still that America. And I think by reading this book, my hope is that you guys will collect some of that. The title of it is Old Breed General. It's available now. So please go pick up a copy. Amy, there's there's some tragedy in this story, though, in that March 1945, as we go to celebrate nearing the end of this effort, the flag's been planted at Iwo Jima. By September, we're declaring victory, and we lose him, and he dies of a heart attack in March of 1945. Uh, what, a, what an incredible, yeah. well, he, right? Yeah. Yeah, he, um, so the last battle, and it, if you know about Peleliu, you know it's where the Japanese, the Battle of Peleliu is where the Japanese drastically changed their strategy and to take down as many Americans as they possibly could. That was the last battle he participated in. They kept uh, kept him out there quite long. He finally came home um, in November of 1945, home to Washington. He became the commandant of the Marine Corps schools, which is now Marine Corps University. Um, and he went kind of, we have, he went on a tour, you know, a media tour, cause they still needed to bump up, you know, war bonds and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So we've got an interview, a CBS radio interview that I should send you of him when he comes back. And it's so good. He, he's, it's late, that's late fall 44 timeframe. November. Mm-hmm. Actually the interview is on November 11th, 1944. Wow. Um, and, uh, so then you come around pre veterans day. Um, you come around um, into uh, February and March, um, and yeah. he is at Quantico. He comes up, he brings Sleepy and Pat up to the Marine Corps barracks in Washington, D.C. There's going to be a big party of former First Marine Division veterans. Um, you know, he had been a commanding officer there for two or three years, and he was going back and so excited. And um, that he was at the party, and He walked out um, and sat down on the steps. He said he didn't feel well, ended up having a heart attack. Mm. Our grandmother, sleepy, you know, still in her 30s, rushed out um, to um, hold him. And, you know, Colonel Kilmartin, who was the commanding CEO of the base then, the barracks, you know, called sick bay and they took him and, but he was gone. And um, so that was really tragic. Um, My dad was so happy. We've got film from uh, the first, with the history division found of our dad at Quantico running around with our grandfather, playing in tanks and planes. And all of a sudden all that was gone. Mm. And 
Um, he didn't, you know, he he didn't get to see justice for all the Marines and the, his men and who had died. He he didn't get to see that. And yeah. I mean, nor did President Ro- Roosevelt died, you know, with, you know, about a month later. But um, gosh, it was really devastating. And then Sleepy had to um, figure out what she was going to do. And she luckily had friends in the Marine Corps and they helped set her up back in Washington. Um, but the positive is in um, that summer of 1945, 44, um, Sleepy got a letter from uh, the Secretary of Navy, then Admiral Forrestal, saying the citizens of Lowell, Massachusetts are building this ship, this destroyer, and we want to name it in honor of your husband, Major General Curtis. So um, Sleepy uh, got to, and our father, you know, went and yeah. they christened the Rupertus in 1945. You know, legacy, legacy long lives after um, uh, we leave this earth, and he's left that incredible legacy. And, and quite frankly, um, it feels to me like he gave his heart to the nation. You know, he gave every piece of his heart to this effort, and he did what he had to do. And that his time was then. <laughs> and we might not understand him. We, you might have, you know, you might have wished you would have had him longer to, to be able to relish in those moments, to celebrate those moments, to, mm-hmm. uh, right, to take those moments in with his guys. But it seems to me like the man uh, gave every medal of himself and every ounce of his heart to this effort, um, which is, uh, which is pretty incredible. Name of the book, Old Breed General. Guys, it, it's just been such a, a thrill and an honor just to share some of these moments to get people to to think about this or to think well you know that's a name i've not heard of or heard much of we want to explore don when when folks read the book what do you hope their takeaway is other than we need to make this into a movie which is one of the things i'm thinking <laughs> off the top here i'm gonna evolve one of my books and it's a it's a lot of work but it's well worth it. listen i hope that uh, first off um, they will know and appreciate who this man was, and he will begin to take his rightful place in history. I also hope that the men under whom he served get their right due and that Americans and other people of the world understand the horrid conditions that our troops and our Marines fall in in the Pacific. I think one of the sad, not sad, but just the way it is, the European war gets a lot more attention historically. And this is one opportunity to begin to com- to fill the void to you know put more pieces in the puzzle, complete the picture, and honor those men under whom the general served. And I hope it will honor them, honor him, and honor our country, and honor the Rupertus family as well. Amen. You know, I had the honor of standing in uh, my grandparents' home this past weekend, um, and they have both since passed. Uh, and in that home sits today, and will always, as long as it's there and it's ours, the very small statue on my grandfather's dresser of those Marines planting that flag into that rock in Iwo Jima. Mm. And that's one piece, right? It's one, one small piece of this rather large story, but I think speaks to your point, Don, of two of, of remembering the depth, right? The depth of what was asked upon these young men to go across the globe and fight two wars at the same stinking time. Like what it's, we can't even wrap our brain around it really, if you think about it, the effort. And so my hope is that by, by creating a new piece of this, right? Everlasting story, right? The story of World War II is, is, has got so much depth, but, but by creating this new piece to it, may, maybe it adds a little bit to, to not just the lore, but the importance uh, of, of what they did. What do you think, Amy? 
Well, I, um, two things. I totally agree with Don that this, the, we need to honor all these men and women that were there. Um, but what is interesting right now is, um, that these same islands that the Marines fought on, you know, where they invaded embedded islands, came upon embedded islands, um, are now being taken over by China. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there is a real, I think, important time to look at lessons learned in the Pacific um, and in building out islands and building, engin- re-engineering islands. Um, so I think that is very, it is very relevant to look at this past, look at the Pacific and what did we do there right and what did we do long, wrong and what are the lessons for now? All right, guys, tell us where uh, they can find the book. Oh, and I got to know, too, Old Breed General. Tell me about the title. Right. Uh, well, <laughs> we we have a Facebook group for this. It, well, I started in 2016 called Discovering My Grandfather, and I put out a, you know, when we knew we, the book was going to be published, I said, well, what 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 would you like to see the title? And we had all these titles out, some from the Rifleman's Creed and some from others, mm-hmm. but ultimately... At the end of the day, the publisher thought it would be best because he was a general of the old breed. You know, they called it the old breed back then, that it should be called old breed general. And First Marine Division was called the old breed, right? Yeah. And so I didn't, we didn't have much wiggle room. In retrospect, I think it's it's good. Yeah. You know, I, I, and, I uh, think they nailed it. I think they nailed it. That's well, sure. and also Tom Sledge wrote the great book, the old with the old breed. And so it's it's a perfect segue, you know, to that. They yeah. didn't even have that book as well. So I think that's well, what the publisher would be thinking about. Yeah, the, um, With the Old Bridge about Eugene Sledge is just an amazing book. And actually, um, it really gives you a sense of what it's like to be boots on the ground. Mm. And um, this is from a commanding general's perspective, um, but who also had his boots on the ground. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I've been in touch with um, uh, Eugene Sledge's son through this process. So that's pretty cool. You know, they're yeah, all yeah. out. I got to think this journey's just been incredibly, uh, I mean, emotional, um, powerful, life-changing for you, Amy, at this point, right? To, to have walked this entire journey. I'm just, I'm so glad. I'm so happy for you that yeah. it's culminated and that the book's out. Guys, go, go get it. Go pick it up. It's called Old Breed General. It's a great, great story. I'm just, I'm thrilled, thrilled for you guys through this process. And Brian, I've, I've heard the books are just arriving now in Barnes and Noble around the country. I've been getting some emails coming in. And of course, they're available on Amazon too, but lots of places to find them. Yeah, we'll be sure, of course, to add links on the show page in the show notes where you guys can go find them, pick them up. Uh, you've got not but, you know, uh, a few weeks away from uh, Iwo Jima Memorial Date. You've got his passing date, March 25th. You, so so go go find it go find it and pick it up and and be a part of this maybe untold part of history that you can then get a front row seat for thank you absolutely guys uh thrilled to have you today we're so grateful for both of your services to our country don for you uh for your military career and for continuing to share the legacy of these heroes and amy for for picking up the 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 pen and for doing what i can only imagine is hundreds of hours of work to capture all this eternally grateful for both of you thank you brian she's amy peacock that's don brown thank I am you. Brian- I did the yes. one thing that was motivating go ahead amy mm-hmm. no you said one thing one that was motivating thing- i want to hear it 
Okay, one thing that was the most motivating every time I, I'm like, oh my God, it's so hard to understand this battle as a civilian or whatever. I'm like, just imagine being one of these Marines on a, you know, a transport going to an embedded island and having to jump out and get shot at. I'm like, who am I to complain? Onward. <laughs> onward. Great perspective. And with that, we'll go onward. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I'm Brian Jodis, and this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast. Hey guys, real quick before we go, Amy sent me an interview that the general did with CBS. And I thought, wow, it'd be really neat if you could, after hearing our interview with Amy and Don, hear General Rupertus in his own words. And so we'll take you out with that. General, which do you consider the toughest of these operations? I don't believe there's any measure of comparison. Each campaign was against the same fanatically determined enemy, and each had its own problems of weather, terrain, and distribution of enemy strength. All the campaigns against the Japanese have been hard, bitterly contested operations that have demanded the utmost of every man engaged in them. I know that every man in every branch of the military service fighting in the Pacific is willing to give, is willingly giving everything he has to achieve a common goal the complete defeat of the Japanese enemy. If that aim is to be reached, the people back home, each related in blood to a fighting man, must contribute in the same measure. The war against the Japanese is a very personal war. Every bomb and every bullet sounds as though it is meant for you in person. Much of the fighting is at the closest quarters. You are the man that psyche-crazed warrior is charging at as he runs screaming toward your lines. You are the man that gleaming samurai sword is going to cut through if you don't strike first. That's just what we've been doing out there, striking first and striking hard. Well, it seems to have been working pretty well, General. We've gone a long way in the Pacific in the last two years. You think we're close to our goal of complete defeat of the Japanese? The hardest part of the war lies ahead of us. As we get closer to the Japanese homeland, the Japanese determination and fanaticism becomes even greater. Their military strength also increases as we get closer to its source. This is certainly no time to sit back and contemplate our past successes. Rather, we should consider the tremendous task that lies ahead and mentally resolve to match in willing personal contribution inspired by a love of country the fanatic devotion to the emperor that spurs the Japanese. Well, Friday was the 169th anniversary of the founding of the United States Marine Corps, General. What do you think the 170th year holds for the Corps? I think it will probably be one of the fightingest years in our fighting history. We Marines are naturally proud of our past achievements, and as a Marine, I can assure the people of the United States that every man in the Corps will be doing everything he can to sustain our record and justify the motto of the Marine Corps, Simplify Dulles, always faithful. Thank you, General, and I'm sure that every Marine will. <laughs>